while your day is winding down. They're just getting started. This is South Coast Tonight with Chris McCarthy and Marcus Farrow. They've got you covered on all the news of the day. From local issues to politics on both sides of the aisle. This is the place where the movers and shakers come to be heard. To listen. And where they're held accountable. This is South Coast Tonight on WBSM. Welcome to South Coast Tonight. I'm Marcus. Uh, Chris will be back tomorrow. We've got a great show ahead for you tonight. We've got Lisa Kaczynski from Politico at, at uh, 8 talking about um, rent control, the, the rent control um, ordinances that are being proposed across the Commonwealth. Uh, we have Adam Bass reporting live from City Hall in the New Bedford City Council meeting at 9. But first, we're joined by Bristol County Sheriff Paul Haro. Hey, Sheriff. Hey, Marcus. How you doing? Good. Thanks for joining me this evening. So you um, you had a, a, a national suicide expert. Uh, we talked about this, I believe, um, before, but he visited your uh, facility this week uh, from uh, for a few days. Uh, what what exactly did he do? Yeah, so um, Lindsay Hayes is somebody who has been working on inmate suicide for over 40 years. Um, you know, he just, I'm reiterating this audience who might not have heard before, but he, um, he looked at over 3,800 inmate suicides and he, um, he has, you know, he's a nationally recognized expert. He happens to be from Massachusetts. He lives in Mashpee and I think it's Mashpee. Um, but he basically, uh, you know, he, he spent three days at the jail. We met with him Monday morning at, um, at, at, uh, about eight 30 in the morning. And we met for probably an hour, hour and a half or so. And then he went and spent the next three days looking at our operations, and he, uh, you know, debriefed with us actually last night between about four and five thirty. So we spent an hour and a half, and you know, he has a number of recommendations for us, you know, of things that we can and should do better. And so the first thing I'll say though is that the recommend all of the recommendations he's giving us are not necessarily things that have uh, been uh, a shortcoming in the past that have caused suicide. So there's a number of things he said that we should do to prevent suicide or to reduce the risk. You know, we can never actually eliminate the risk, but we can reduce the risk. And that's what I'd like to do is reduce the rate. So, you know, he, he presented some of those things to us. But it, it, another thing that's really important to also keep in mind is that addressing this issue is the way we address it is an attitude. It's a mindset. It's, it's a perspective on what we should focus on. And in the past has been the attitude where, well, we're following all policy and procedure. Hey, there's nothing we can do better. Or the attitude has been, you know, the Bristol County rate of suicide is higher than the rest of the state. So I think that's the reason for the suicides. And, and that's not, helpful you know it really doesn't do much for us because we're not looking at what we can do better and that's why i brought mr hazen was to actually um you know give us these recommendations because he's looked at systems and, he, and so when he went through you know he came up with a number of things and um you know we he you know want, he shared some of those things with us 
yesterday, and he's going to give us a full report. And I've, um, you know, I'm looking forward to that full report. Some of the, the recommendations are going to be expensive to implement, and that is what it is. You know, we, we, we do what we have to do. You know, we'll ask the money for it from the state legislature. We're going to get creative on ways to do this, to implement, but, you know, we'll, we'll deal with that. Well, Sheriff, so you're saying he's identified some things and they're expensive. Does that mean yeah. that the, like, just from the, a cursory evaluation, or not cursory, but just from the initial evaluation of the jails that there is a serious deficit in suicide prevention as from where it is now to where it should be? We have a lot to do, absolutely. There's definitely a lot of things we can and should be doing things. You know, one of the findings was that seven out of seven um, suicides at Dartmouth were done using the bunk beds. Okay. Okay, so if, if seven out of seven were, and they were different, and the superintendent has told me, is that these were done in using different means, but seven out of seven all used the bunk beds. Okay. So that is a big red flag to me. Like, why didn't we look at that a little bit more closely and make the beds more suicide resistant, you know, to reduce the risk rather than just, you know, not doing, you know, I, I, that's, that's, you know, a little bit of a mystery. So, so, so what, how do you make a bed more suicide resistant? Do you, do you have, do you there, know off the top there, of your head? Yeah, I do. There's several ways. There's, okay. So some of like, we just started like stop my dog from squeaking the toy in the background. She okay. wants to play. And so we yeah. take that away from her. Sorry, girl. I'll play with you later. All right. So <laughs> she just looked at me really like, what, what's up, dad? Um, so the, uh, so the, so the beds, so we're talking about specifically bunk beds, and there are there are different ways, on, and all the, 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 there's a lot of different types of bunk beds, and there's different vulnerabilities on the bunk beds depending on which model it is. And so Steve Sousa, the superintendent, has already reached out to um, other uh, jails to see what type of model beds they use, if it's different than ours, if it's better than ours. So in the meantime, what we're going to, so some of the bunks have, you know, on the second uh, level, you might have like a little 45 degree angle crossbar that could be used as a device to uh, tie something to, and then you sit down and you could then commit suicide. And this has actually happened. And it doesn't take any great level of creativity to do that if you have the means, like a, like a clothing that you can tie into uh, to something to choke yourself. And so it's not tall enough to hang yourself like so your feet are dangling, but you can sit down and you know the blood can be cut and you like pass out. Sure. So, so that's one way that is a concern. There are other crossbars to step up that um, you know people could use to tie to and then sit down, and you could again choke yourself. These have been done. Um, so it's a real easy fix. It's just you know, I'm not even an engineer, but basically what I said immediately was, okay, we're going to get some uh, plate, you know, steel plates, you know, that are appropriate for that size, whatever it is weld them to there and then you can't run a, uh, something to hang yourself with yeah there's also little holes within the um the, the bed kind of not we, we where you would rest the mattress and something can be put in there and then looped over at the side and you could hang yourself so all those little holes need to be closed up but the fact that seven out of seven inmate suicides at dartmouth were done with the the uh, bunk beds 
is a huge red flag. I mean, it's just like, why didn't we look closer? So I'm not going to look backwards. What I'm going to do is look forward. So another thing we have to uh, do is look at where we are housing um, the inmates with respect to these double bunks. And by the way, double bunks is just one issue. That's the issue. There's a lot of different things, but I'm focusing on this right now. But we can talk about other things as well. There's a lot of different things we spent in the hour and a half meeting, and we're going to get even more in the report, the written report, which I'm going to make public. Um, the, uh, you know, so there's also a lot of cells are, uh, you know, is housed with one inmate, but we have two like beds, like a bunk bed. Yeah. So if we have one inmate who is routinely housed in these cell, uh, these, uh, these cells, why do we have bunks? Like right. that, that's a risk, you know? So I started the conversation with the superintendent today and the maintenance director about removing as many of these as possible. And we're going to come up with a place where, uh, like a process where we have, um, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, on, on the cells that are routinely single cells, we're going to remove the second to top bunk, the top, you know, uh, part of the bed. And then we are going to have single uh, beds in there so you can't hang, there's nothing to hang yourself with. And then what we'll do, you know, then we have to have a process. What if we have an overflow of inmates and we do need to double bunk people? We're going to create a process to um, immediately uh, have somebody come in and, you know, put the double bunk in. And, you know, there's going to be if somebody is in a single cell, you know, and then somebody else comes in, we're not going to put like one person in a single cell and then this person over here in a double. What we're going to do is we're going to take the person out of the single and put both of them in the double because then you can have an extra set of eyes, which helps reduce the risk. Although we have had people commit suicide where they were in a cell with somebody else and, you know, it was during the night where people are sleeping. So there's things like that that we can do, and we're going to start working towards right away. There was also a warning about several of the windows, and, you know, some of the windows have a vertical bar. And you might say, well, how, how can you hang yourself with a vertical bar? Wouldn't the rope just slide? It would, or whatever the rope-like device would be. It would keep sliding until it hits the bottom, which is the, where the window frame is. So what we want to do is retro, there's going to be a, a short-term solution and a long-term solution. The short-term solution is going to be to retrofit the windows so that they can still, some of these windows need to open because there's no, uh, they may need ventilation. Um, you know, but what we'll do is we can retrofit them with a really strong plastic-like plexiglass that has official name for it and have the holes small enough to be, allow air come in, but, you know, not small. So people you know, jump out. Yeah, well, not, not jumbo, because it's still, you still have the bars there. But what you want to do is block, you know, put the plexiglass in front of the bar so you can't actually use the bar anymore. I got you. Yourself. So that's a short-term fix, but that is not a, like a, a fully adequate one. Um, so what really what we also need to do is put HVAC in several of the um, housing units because that would be good for the COs who have to work there in extreme heat in the summer, but also help decrease the agitation that inmates might experience, which then is a problem for COs because they could be assaulted because of heat agitates people. There's plenty of research on that. Sure. So those are just a couple of so there, there are things like that we can do with the physical infrastructure of the building and there's there was a number of other things and there's going to be more coming as well well can you can um, you Nate, can you rattle yeah. off a few other things in terms of the physical infrastructure so the windows need to need to be um the the the, bar, the window bars you need some plexiglass in front of them you need um beds that aren't as i guess uh you know you acceptable yeah yeah, yeah right beds that are, that are you know uh right so you need new beds um 
what else? What other physical um, traits of the the cells that he that are the the the, the jails that he mentioned or suicide well, risk? Those were a couple of the, the the big ones that come to mind right now. I mean, we spoke for an hour and a half yesterday. I took a lot of notes. Um, you know, so the you know I'm really looking at my notes right now. Um, one of the interesting things, though, about those seven out of seven suicides is none of them happened on the mental health watch unit. And so they all happened in general housing, if I remember right. I, I Hopefully I got that right. You know, but they, they didn't actually happen on the suicide, like the 15-minute watches or the eyeball watches. Yeah. And so they actually happened in the general population. Okay. Um, now, there's a lot of things we could infer about that, but let's just say that is what it is. Um, so there's, there are other things, though, um, that he recommended. And, you know, so like one of them is our intake screening process. When somebody goes to um, meet with a mental health clinician, they're being interviewed. The way it's set up right now is it's not very, uh, it's not private. And, you know, HIPAA doesn't apply within a jail or within a prison. Like we can't, you know, like the information flows freely within the, the system because we have full custody over the people, but obviously we can't release that information publicly. But, you know, so there's a practice right now where, for security reasons, when you have an inmate being interviewed by a mental health clinician talking about suicide issues, there's a CO in the room. And one of the things uh, Mr. Hayes suggested was he said, you know, if you really want to uh, make sure you're getting the full amount of information out of a, an inmate, you really shouldn't have a CO in the room at the time, and you might yeah. say, well, then how can we keep the, the, the uh, clinician, the nurse, how can we keep her safe, you know, if we're going to close the door? Well, simple. You have a, a, a door with a window, and so that way a CO can keep an eye on what's going on inside, make, and if there's an issue, then the you know, CO can respond, uh, you know, just as quickly. So there's things like that just that just require a little bit of creativity um, for problem solving, you know, and, uh, you know, identifying you know, ways to work with the inmates while they're uh, coming in uh, to the system. So that was one of them. Um, also, the, one of the, the questionnaires we have, you know, it was it, there was a number of things about the screening that could be improved. You know, the, the screening only asked a handful of questions, very, very basic. And he said, you know, the, the number of questions could be more, uh, uh, more robust. They could be more probing at, at intake. But then also when somebody's coming off of a mental health watch, uh, you know, also sometimes known as a suicide watch, and they, when they are coming off that, there could be another screening process as well where, you know, you don't just want to do that first screening, but, you know, it's a, a much more robust one and, you know, than what we were doing at the time of uh, intake. So, um, you know, there's also, and this is the one that's actually being discussed right now in the, in the legislature, but you have phone calls, yeah. You know, and what his suggestion was allow more phone calls because people who are isolated with no contact are at great risk, especially if they are in on a new high-profile charge. It's the first time in there. Um, you know, they haven't mm -hmm. been in the criminal justice system before, so that's another risk as well. Um, you know, so th there's. You know, look at my I mean, and that's again. that's going to take action from the state legislature and, and Governor Healy. I know, I know that there has been, like you said, some discussion on that. I mm -hmm. think it's probably in our budget, but um, they they need to move on that. That was a discussion. You know, we thought they were going to do that last last session, um, and then that I don't know. 
ended up getting lost in conference committee or something. But so hopefully that 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 does get done because I think yeah. it is something that's needed. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, just access. I mean, now a lot of people might say, um, and, and you're a defense attorney, so you've worked with people who are locked up and everything. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, full time working in jail and prison, and a lot of, there are a lot of people who are of the mindset, you know, that they think that well, if they're locked up, too bad, so sad. Yeah, you know you don't get you don't get any access to the outside. You want to get access to the outside, behave yourself. Yeah, don't do and, crimes, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It does, well, it's not that simple, okay? Yeah. Because um, you know it, it's some folks, you know they the, the entire life history that they've you know had is yeah. you know working against them, and they're going to end up behind bars because you know they are failing. Society has failed them. Their family has failed them. They are failing us. You know, it's just it's a, just a whole failure you know of, of individual and our job is in corrections is to correct that's why we call it corrections so if you cut contact or reduce or impair contact with people on the outside it's a it's a dual risk it's a risk for people who are locked up like our most recent suicide the person um you know in january that suicide or i should say a parent suicide because it was the final report has not been yet released but you know for all intents and purposes we know how it's going to go um that person actually reached out to family 20 times okay you know that the hour or two before and they couldn't get through for whatever reason and so and we know that from the the, the records the phone records so we you know within the jail so it, lack of access to friends and family on the outside is a risk for um you know harm on the inside but on top of that if you lose contact with friends or family on the outside particularly family when you're going back into society imagine this you've been locked up for six months 12 months 18 months however long what if you had an apartment okay and you know now when you leave well you've been locked up for 18 months guess what your apartment has been vacated and you're you don't have a job to go back to because you've been locked up so when you go out if you don't have contact with friends or family you don't also your 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 apartment your landlord threw your stuff out. They opened up, they threw your stuff out. You haven't been paying rent. Um, You need a place to go. So it's actually a further risk for reoffending if you don't have contact with the outside. So you, you know, because if you, you know, the minute you're released, you need a place to stay that night. And so if you don't have that, well, guess what? It's cold out. I've seen this in Philadelphia. You know, it was, we had stories of this. People are released. It's cold. They, you know, don't have any place to sleep. They put a brick through a plate glass window. I was just thinking of a client that did that, a client I had that threw a brick through a window because they needed somewhere to stay for a few months. And they wait for the cop to show up. The cop shows up. Maybe they resist arrest intentionally because then it makes sure they get through the winter months. Yeah. You know, so we we have to deal with the hand we're dealt. And if we're dealing with people who, you know, have a lot of challenges to successful re-entry, you know, we have to minimize those challenges. So, um, yeah. but yeah, there's, there's a lot of things and I haven't even gotten the full report. Um, well, so, so, so yeah, so yeah. We, they've identified, so he identified, he was there for three days. He identified some structural, physical, structural, um, structural things that can be corrected um, that you guys are going to work on, like the beds and the windows. Uh, he had, you know, obviously the issue of of uh, jail calls and the sort of lack of accessibility to jail calls. That's something that needs to be fixed at the state level with the state legislature, and hopefully they they can move on that, right? But yeah. um, 
what is there anything else that he's identified and what further can be is going to be identified with his report like he's been there for three days what more is he going to look at to put this report together well there's a lot of different things yeah I, to all of them i don't know yet i haven't gotten the report um he gave us a kind of debrief and gave us some highlights but there were physical infrastructure things. There were things like the, um, you know, the uh, mortality review. You know, after somebody is successful of committing suicide or even attempted, we should be reviewing that. And that's something that, you know, I, I don't think there's a real formal process in place. Like sort of in the military, you have an after action review. If when things go sideways, you then look at what happened. Now. When we had our first, my first suicide of the year, you know, my first one, the first of the year, um, on yeah. January. A couple days yeah. after you were sworn in. Yeah, it was the second day. It was 36 yeah. hours in, but it was January 5th. I started on January 4th. Um, when we had that uh, suicide, I went back down to the jail, and I wanted to see the process by which the, you know, the, the, you know, the response happens. And quite honestly, I was I was impressed. You know, there there actually was, and actually, Lindsay Hayes also said, you know, your process afterwards of documenting, you know, in the immediate aftermath, is the way it should be. So he he noted there was a number of positive things too. The, you know, the communication between um, the mental health provider and you know our staff is the way it should be. Another thing he noted is that the security staff are not. Um, they're not uh, dictating medical needs. And what he did was, the way Lindsay is, uh, determined this, is he didn't talk to the supervisors or the managers or the people at the top who stand the most to benefit by looking good. He talked to the line staff, the, the, nurse, the individual nurses. You know, he, he, he went around and, he, he, you know, the people that he would be able to just say, hey, what's really going on here? And the people who, <laughs> you know, they, they, they're going to... I mean, we, we had a pretty negative environment. It, it, working in corrections is tough, yeah. and it's, it's, it's tough work. And so, a lot of these people, they're not gonna, they're not gonna cover for us. Right. You know, they're, they're just like, no, this, this is tough, and this is, you know, if there's a problem, they're gonna say it, and they do. You know, I, I meet with people in my office um, on a regular basis. You know, uh, different staff come to me and want to speak confidentially about what's going on. So they, they will say if they think there's something, something's wrong. Some of them are, um, you know, a little bit, you know, a little bit more. Uh, emboldened, you know, since I started because they just say, hey, it's a new new sheriff, new, a new you know, uh, supervisor of the jail. I'm going to go ahead and bring this to their attention. So, uh, yeah, but there was, I'm, I'm looking through my notes, though, um, you know, there was the, the, the talk about the door, the, there's some, the questionnaires. So there's things, there's processes, we're intake, there's processes, you know, it's for after, you know, to see what we did wrong. Um, sure. physical infrastructure issues. Uh, you know, not everything was doom and gloom, though. There were a number of things that were um, you know, that, that Mr. Hayes said, you know, hey, communication's really good. The medical response, you know, afterwards, that, you know, like what happens in the media, that aftermath, you, you know, the, uh, that was the way it should be. He said, but there are things that could and should be done. And like I said, some of the things he's recommending had nothing to do with a prior suicide. Yeah. These are just things to help reduce the risk in the future. But some of the things had a lot to do with, you know, very specific suicides. Right. So, um yeah, he, he had a lot. I'm looking, like I said, I'm looking forward to get the report. He said he'd have it for us in about a month. It's um, it's not a cookie cutter report. It's specific to our organization, and I am going to make it public for everybody so they can see what the recommendations are. Well, looking forward to, to seeing that report um, when it comes out, and, uh, and I'm sure you'll join us on air to, to talk more about that. So, um, 
I wanted to uh, just ask you a couple more questions before I have to let you go. Is um, mm-hmm. one I, I'd heard you on another um, program say that you know you just finished an uh, org chart for um, inmate services, mm-hmm. and so uh, I know you you know having an inmate services person was was a big part of your um, of your uh, inauguration speech. So can you tell us where you're at in that process? What what ex- what role were you trying to create, and and where you're at in sort of filling that role? Yeah, it's a direct report to me. It's the title would be Director of Inmate Services. And right now, inmate services are all over the place. You know, they report to all different people, and there's no strategic plan. There's no flow of the, um, you know, experience an inmate has with inmate services from time of admission to time of release. And so what does inmate services mean? It can be medical. It can be food. It can be mental health. It can be drug treatment programming, job, um, you know, training, vocational training. Uh, you know, it, it's all of those programs that make people hopefully reduce, you know, reoffending. And it's also focusing on discharge planning, housing, health care, and a job. So all of these, you know, so we have, on the one hand, we have, uh, you know, the security staff who keep people safe. They keep the inmates safe. Um, from each other. They keep the public safe from the inmates from, you know, getting out. They keep the COs and staff safe from, um, you know, inmates. So there's a security side. That's keeping people safe. And, you know, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of what we do is setting people up for success upon release. Because if we just warehouse people, it's not a Department of Corrections. It's a Department of Warehouse. Uh, so we really need to focus, have a strategic plan, and we don't really have that. What happens is when we get a grant, we say, yes, we got a grant. Let's implement the grant. Good, wonderful. We're going to get the grant. So, you know, I, I love using the CDL program. It's just it's such a, a, a you know, an example of failure, uh, quite honestly. And this is what we're doing, and I need to change this. And, it's, it, you know, change takes time because there's things you have to put in place to do it right. But we have a CDL simulator. And the CDL simulator is basically like a large video game. And that's, let's be honest, that's what it is. But it has a, has a functional purpose to it, though, more than just entertainment. Sure. But what we do, though, is we bring people on the CDL simulator. And then what we don't do is they don't ever get any time on the road driving um, a truck. And they certainly, therefore, do not get any, you know, a CDL. They don't go to the registry and take the test and then get to. So that's something that has to change. And that's going to, I need more security staff. We need to schedule things a little bit differently. But that's something that we can do different and better if we really just focus on it. And and the Steve Souza, the superintendent, I mean, he's got so much on his plate. You know, it's just he's... Um, you know, I think he's kind of a victim of, you know, what when sometimes when people do a good job, well, give it to him. You yeah, know? right. He gets it. So, and yeah. I think that's kind of what I, so um, what I'm trying to do is relieve him of some of these uh, responsibilities, not because he hasn't done a good job or anything, not because he's done anything wrong, but just because I want to put it under somebody who can really focus on that in their fullest, because right now his attention is split among security and among inmate services. And right. I think that there's enough work to do there's, there's, that you can have multiple people doing these things. Sure. So so I'm going to create this position, but then there's going to be a flow of, you know, you have medical services, you got dis, uh, post-release uh, planning and discharge planning, housing, health care, and a job that I've talked about. You've got your insert, like in-jail programs, drug treatment, anger management, uh, violence prevention, sex offender prevention, you know, education, I said our vocational programs, and, you know, so you have that stuff. 
then you've got your religious services and your inmate grievances. So some of these things are already being done, but not all of them. And so I have to look at who's doing what right now and say, okay, I'm changing your job description. You still have a job, but this is, we're going to do it a little bit different. So that way there's a flow from the time somebody's admitted to the time they're released. And it actually makes sense because right now it's just like, Hey, we got a grant. Well, okay, let's do a CDL program. Okay, good. Let's put somebody in the program. And then this, this, it's not really part of a bigger picture. And that's what I want to change. So, um, we're speaking with Bristol County Sheriff Paul Harreau. Uh I appreciate you coming on, telling us, you know, give us some updates about what's going on there with respect to suicide prevention. is very important. Inmate services uh, is important as well. Uh, before I let you go, is there anything else you want to leave the audience with? No, I mean, uh, we're, we're changing some things. And so, you know, if people are interested in working for us, you know, we're uh, to have a $5,000 signing bonus, which would be paid out in two different um Periods twenty five hundred and twenty five hundred. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting salary is you know fifty seven thousand with you know a, like a, um, a a bonus of let's say like a stipend of some sort um, you know for attending roll call and um, you know so th- then we're also going to have more caseworker positions that I'm going to be creating so you know it's if people want to get involved and really you know do a job that makes a difference and it's a tough job don't get me wrong it's a tough job and I'm trying to be creative on how to pay people better you know keep your eye out for uh, job postings, particularly on our Facebook page, but uh, we, um, you know, we're, we're trying to do good things here. Yeah, I know you're working on your website and all that, and I think we're we're going to be following up on that and seeing if we can. Uh, I know we'll have a, a longer form conversation about about uh, you know recruitment and the the benefits of working at the uh, the BCSO. So, uh, Sheriff, I appreciate you joining me this evening. Have a good weekend. Well, thanks, Marcus. Take care. That was Bristol County Sheriff Paul Harreau. I'm going to take a break, and we'll be right back. This is South Coast Tonight. WBSN. Welcome back. Uh, I'm Marcus, 508-996-0500. That's how you get in the program. That was Bristol County Sheriff Paul Harreau. I think, again, you know, um, ran on a, a platform of changing the way things are done, and I think that's, you know, what he's doing now. Um, so we'll, we're looking for, uh, we're definitely looking forward to seeing that, uh, report on the suicide issues, uh, on the, on, on the suicide prevention and, and what more can be done. Um, you know, uh, we talked mostly about Dartmouth. I'm assuming Ash Street was covered in that as well. I didn't get to ask him about, um, you know, the relocation plan or where that's at, but at the outset, you know, he said, and it's obvious that if that moves forward, it's going to be a, you know, five, six year process anyway. So probably won't be any immediate news on that front. 508-996-0500 is how you can join us this evening. We'll also take your messages on the WBSM app chat. Um, We definitely started a robust conversation on South Coast tonight on Tuesday night when we started, when uh, Councilor Burgo proposed his rent control um, ballot question. Uh, I think that's sort of dominated the day talk and even the evening talk here. And uh, we'll be talking about that more because Lisa Kaczynski from Politico, she's going to be joining us in the nine o'clock, I mean, the eight o'clock hour. She is, uh, she writes for the Massachusetts Playbook, which is a daily newsletter um, that you can get in your inbox, actually, that gives you, you know, from P-Town to Pittsfield, what's going on here in Massachusetts in terms of news. But she just wrote a piece on rent control, uh, on rent control ordinances 
being uh, put forward, our home rule petitions being put forward in Boston and in other places in the Commonwealth as well. And in fact, this story here in WBSM was featured there. So we're going to talk about what happened in Boston, you know, what we, you know, what to expect, um, what needs to be done, because it looks like Boston's going to be the bellwether for um, what's going to happen across the Commonwealth in terms of rent uh, control or rent stabilization. Um, Obviously, you know, I think people are having a difficult time grasp uh, dealing with the housing crisis. So this has become a po- one a, a popular um, solution, not the only solution, and certainly probably can't stand on its own as a solution. There'll have to be, I think, a more building of a robust, you know, housing, but uh, still a solution uh, that people are talking about. Um, 508-996-0500. I see some calls online. I'm going to take a break and then we'll we'll take those calls. Listen to us live anywhere in the world on the WBSM app. The voices in the night that cover the news of the day. I heard the voices too. Chris McCarthy and Marcus Farrow. More of South Coast Tonight happens now on WBSM. Welcome back. Let's go to the phones. Good evening. Good evening, Marcus. How's it going? How Good. Hey, you know that Politico is owned by uh, the parent company's Alibaba? That's owned by the communist Chinese Oh, yeah? Look it up. Yeah, because there's a lot. You know, TikTok is owned by China. So is Politico. That's a fact. You can look it up. I I will. Uh, Wow. Because, I mean, if you don't want the Chinese putting their spin on our politics here. Uh, Lisa's a good reporter. She's worked for other outlets. Well, I'm not saying her necessarily. I'm saying she works for the communist Chinese because that's that's, uh, Politico is a Chinese company. Okay. But, uh... I want to talk about Joe Biden. He was in Philadelphia today. Was he? And he revealed his, uh, oh, should I say unveiled his $6.8 trillion economic spending plan. Okay. And and that's going to increase your taxes. Uh, well, he wants to increase the tax by $2 trillion. Whose taxes? Everybody's. How? That's, our national debt is $32 trillion, $400 billion, the interest on that. How do you pay off the national debt? Uh, well, let's see, spend, we, we can't. And uh, that's 247000 per taxpayer. Uh, it was announced on ABC News, or the radio news, that the United States is the largest borrower of the IMF. Okay. And, uh, yeah, that was uh, uh, last last year. I heard well, it on, for, uh, if we're on spending the radio at a de- If we're spending in a deficit, how do you raise revenue? Uh, well, you can't. You can't pay it off. You know You know what the reason why we went into the great... The, when. Uh, in 1929, when Wall Street crashed, you know what was the main cause of the Great Depression? As a matter of fact, it was uh, President Herbert Hoover. He increased taxes by 50%. And that, that also uh, helped, that, well, his bad decision uh, tanked the U.S. economy. And we know what happened, uh, what happened then. And yeah, as far as I don't know, I mean, our strongest economic period was the '50s, and the top tax rate at that point was, I think, ninety percent. So uh, I mean, we had much well, higher taxes. You, we had much higher taxes in our period what, of. What we had, I'm saying is, we had much higher crash. taxes in our period of economic uh, in our in our in the height of our like economic growth and equality is is when we had our highest taxes. Really, it's and really as it's far really as the, the world re- the United States dollars the world reserve currency since World War II. That's why they were able to keep the interest rates uh, low for such a long time, 
But uh, many are losing confidence in the U.S. dollar because of just bad economic policy uh, and, uh, you know, the Weimar Republic. You know what happened there? They have, <laughs> their economy crashed and their, their currency was worth was, was worthless. I'm gonna I'm I'm going to charge you a nickel every time you drop a Hitler reference. What's that? I said I'm gonna charge you a nickel every time. World War One. Every time you drop well, a, a Hitler reference. Well, that was that was World War One. He yeah, was actually uh, in the, the, he the, was in the military Republic? as yeah, a soldier. I and the the, what, the Weimar Republic that was uh, after World War One. It was after World War One. Yeah, and it led yeah, to the economy crashed right. in Germany. Yes, and it led to what? It led to the Great Depression there, uh, that their currency was worthless, that uh, a wheelbarrow was worth more than the, than the paper currency. That had nothing to do with Hitler. Yeah, no, I know the Hitler, fall. The, Hitler the, wasn't even the leader The then. fall of the Weimar Republic led to not the rise of Nazi Germany, the, the Nazi Germany and Hitler. The Weimar, Weimar Republic and ended funded, in the early... And who funded him? And the war machine. Early, Ended in the early 30s. That's what I thought. That's yeah, but, where I thought but, you were who, going. That's why I said. It, that's why I said. That's why I said it was a Hitler reference because it seemed like when you're talking about the Weimar Republic, it inexorably leads to a conversation about what followed the Weimar Republic. Adolf Hitler. You know that. That's what I thought you were talking about. But who funded Adolf Hitler and, we, and his war machine? It was uh, the, the UBS, the United Bank of Switzerland. Yeah, they did. It's, it's, it's historical. But my point is about America. We can't continue to go down this road where you're going to continue to spend and spiral out of control and your dollar is going to be worthless. And then, you know, what difference does it make about rent control if your dollar's worth nothing and inflation spirals out of control? Yeah. I mean, you know, if that happens, then I guess, you know, we've, we've, got, a lot, we've got a lot more problems. Uh, well, I hands. mean, you can always buy food on, uh, you know, uh, Patriot.com, your, your ad. They send a box to your door. I mean, if that's worst case scenario. I love the ad plug. I I, I love it. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. All right, Marcus. Have a good night. You as well. All right, I gotta go. Want to get WBSM? So, uh, Marcus, again, we've got uh, Politico's um, Lisa Kaczynski joining us at eight oh five. She's going to be talking about um, some of the rent control proposals of the one in Boston, in particular, that was proposed by Mayor Michelle Wu and passed um, uh, by an eleven to two margin. They have 13 city councilors, apparently, which seems kind of too few. Uh, actually, adding to our conversation last night about how many city councilors are in different cities, uh, Scott Lee had pointed out there were Chicago has 50, um, 50 wards and 50 aldermen. Some, sometimes they're called aldermen. If you didn't know, now you know. Now you know. All right, we'll be joined by Lisa. We're going to be talking about rent control, and then Adam's going to be reporting reporting live from City Hall, giving us an update on the rent control ballot question vote, and if there's any anything that's going to be.